Good morning, everybody. As you can see from our reading, we've got a lot to, to do today, a lot to talk about. We're going to be in Habakkuk 2, as Ms. Pat read. And um, if you were here a couple of weeks ago, we did Habakkuk 1, and just a, a couple of random Sundays throughout the summer, I'm going to be taking us through the book of Habakkuk. And um, as I said, we're in Habakkuk 2 today. If you lost your place, Habakkuk can be kind of hard to find. It's a small Old Testament prophet towards the end of the Old Testament. If you're looking at a pew Bible, it's going to be on page 663. So you can turn there and follow along with me. And that being said, let me pray for us. This is, a, again, a, I think a hard and a, and a confusing passage, but there's so much here for us today that I want to help us see. So let me pray for us. Lord, as always, we, we come to you hopeful and expectant that, that you will do what you've said through your word. You tell us that your word is able to make us wise into salvation and that your word is breathed out by you and it's useful for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness so that we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So you tell us that you use your word to lead people to faith and you use your word to to change us and to conform us into the image of your Son. And we look to you this morning to do that, and to do that through the book of Habakkuk, a book that maybe some of us have never even read before. So I pray that, that you would use this book in our lives this morning, that where we need to be comforted, that you would comfort us, where we need to be um, maybe laid low, that you would lay us low this morning, where we need to be shaken a bit out of our sleep, that you would shake us out of our sleep. In, your, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let me give us a little summary of chapter one, just in case you weren't here a couple weeks ago, and to kind of catch us up to where we are in chapter two. So in chapter one, if you're looking at that, in chapter one, Habakkuk is confused as to why God was so silent in the face of so much injustice in the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah, which is where Habakkuk lived. And the country had, had wholly turned their backs on God and completely disregarded the covenant that they had made with him. Uh, I'm sure some of you use this phrase. I remember as a kid, my dad would always say, go into hell in a handbasket. You know that phrase? I mean, maybe you use that phrase. I, I, my dad would say that all the time. And in a lot of ways, Habakkuk is looking at Judah, and he's saying, we're going to hell in a handbasket. And God, you're doing nothing. You're silent. And, and as I said, the nation, they just turned their backs on God. There was so much evil. There was so much corruption in, in Judah. And yet God was silent. And so Habakkuk asked God, why are you silent? That is Habakkuk 1, verses 1 through 4. Verses 5 through 11 are God's response to Habakkuk. And he tells Habakkuk that he is about to do something about the wickedness of Judah, but it was not what Habakkuk wanted or expected. What God was about to do was he was going to send the nation Babylon to destroy Judah and carry the people away into exile. Not what Habakkuk was hoping for. So then in verses 12 through 2-1, we find Habakkuk's response to this revelation from God. And Habakkuk is bewildered and confused and distressed because he thinks, how could God let his chosen people die? 
how could he use a nation as wicked as Babylon to do it? Especially a nation that they don't worship the Lord. And one of the things that Habakkuk talks about in kind of his complaint to God in verses 12 through 2-1 is, God, this is a people who they don't believe in you. And so when they conquer us, they're not going to give you the glory. They're going to give themselves the glory. They're going to think that they conquered us by their own might, by their own strength, by their own ingenuity. And so you're going to destroy your people. You're going to use a people even more wicked to do it. And they're going to give themselves all the praise and glory because they're going to think they did it by their own strength. And so Habakkuk is confused and he's distressed because of God's actions in human history. And, you know, often isn't that our story. We're often too confused and distressed by God's actions in history, whether it be in our personal lives, on a national level, on a global level. I think this is often our question. So in Habakkuk 2, God responds to Habakkuk's confusion. And he responds with a vision. You see this in verses 2 and 3. And in verses 2 and 3, God tells Habakkuk, I'm going to give you a vision and I want you to write it down. And the vision is basically a promise. And this is what I'd say is kind of the big idea of chapter 2, that in chapter 2, God responds to Habakkuk's bewilderment with a promise that is meant to comfort Habakkuk. And the promise is twofold. And you find the promise, the, the heart of the promise in verse 4. And the promise is, on the one hand, the proud are not right with God and will be punished. But the righteous will live by faith. That's the promise. The proud are not right with God and they will be punished. But the righteous will live by faith. So that's kind of, I'd say, the big idea of chapter 2. Those are my two main points for the day. Um, the, kind of the negative side of this promise and the positive side. So that being said, I want to first look at the negative aspect of this promise, that the proud are not right with God and will be punished, and then we'll look at the righteous will live by faith. And, you know, if you look at chapter 2, the bulk of chapter 2 is actually committed to this negative aspect of the promise, that the proud are not right with God. Basically, verses 5 through 20, that's what they're all about. They're all about the proud are not right with God and they will be punished, and in particular, God is addressing Babylon, the proud who are not right with God. So look at this with me. So if you look at verse 4, you see, Behold, his soul is puffed up. Now this word, puffed up, this verb, it's a verb that's only used twice in the Old Testament. And the other time that this verb is used, it's actually used to describe Israel. And it's used to describe Israel in the book of Numbers when Israel's about to go to battle and they do not seek the Lord in prayer. They go to battle without the ark. And the ark was basically, it represented God's presence with, with the people. And they also went to battle without their leader, Moses. And so they did not pray. They went without God's presence, and they went without their appointed leader. And it talks about how the way it often gets translated is that Israel was presumptuous. That's the way it often gets translated in Numbers. And so the idea there, it's, it's this 
kind of independent, self-sufficient, kind of beat my chest, I got this. I presume that I can do this by my own might, by my own strength, by my own ingenuity. That's the idea of this word, puffed up. The Babylonians are puffed up. They are full of presumption. And then we keep reading. We see in verse 5, we get some of the same. Verse 5 is kind of confusing to understand, but we still see this idea that the puffed up, they're drunk, they're arrogant, and they're greedy. And so we see more description of the puffed up who are not right with God. And then, you know, you wonder what's going to happen to the puffed up. And that is what verses 6 through 20 explain. Now, if you look at verses 6 through 20, you're going to find the word woe five times. You're going to see it in verse 6, verse 9, verse 12, verse 15, and verse 19. You see that? You see some repetition. Woe, 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 woe. And this is basically the Lord saying, you're in trouble. That's what he's saying. And then also another pattern we see that I want to point out is we see a pattern of, of retribution or justice where basically the Lord says, Babylon did this, well, they're going to get that. You see this in verse 8, verse 10, verse 16, and verse 17. I want to point out a couple of these. So look at verse 8 with me. Notice in verse 8, it says, Babylon, you have plundered many nations, and because you have plundered many nations, you will be plundered. There's this idea of justice. You did this, well, you're going to get that. Look at verse 17 as well. In verse 17, the Lord talks about Lebanon. And Lebanon was this area that was famous for its trees and its wildlife. And, and it looks like what happened was Babylon went into Lebanon and they cut down the trees and they killed the animals. And so basically, they just brought destruction on the area of Lebanon. And the Lord basically says here, he uses imagery. And the imagery is Babylon, the slaughter that you brought to Lebanon, that slaughter is going to happen to you. That's basically the imagery that he's evoking here. So to summarize, what does the Lord say here, and how is it a comfort to Habakkuk? Because again, remember, God is giving Habakkuk a promise that is a comfort to Habakkuk, a comfort to Habakkuk in the midst of his bewilderment. So how is this a comfort? He says to Habakkuk, he basically says, Yes, Habakkuk, I see how evil and unjust and wicked and proud Babylon is. And don't worry, I will punish them too. It's basically what he says. So in chapter 1, Habakkuk is bewildered that God is silent in the face of so much injustice in Judah. And God says, no, Habakkuk, I see it. I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to send Babylon, and they're going to bring justice. Well, then Habakkuk says, well, how could you use Babylon to do that? They're wicked. And he says, well, actually, Habakkuk, don't worry. I will punish them too. We see a lot of justice and a lot of wrath in this book. And he, so he, and he says, Habakkuk, I will be just, and Babylon will not go unpunished for two things. One is for their arrogance. 
and the other is for their unmerciful slaughter of Judah and other nations. Now, that second one, you know, and, and this makes us, it should make us kind of uncomfortable that Habakkuk is comforted in the fact that Babylon, his enemy, will meet a similar fate and be crushed. We're going to talk more about that when we get to Habakkuk 3 because Habakkuk says something in particular about this, being comforted at his enemies being destroyed. He says something about this in particular in chapter 3 that really grabs our attention. I'm going to save that for chapter 3, but the first aspect of why Babylon will be punished and Babylon being punished for their arrogance. We are going to talk about that today because it ties in so closely with but the righteous will live by faith. So hang on with me there. But another thing I want to point out is this actually happened. Like this historically happened. I talked about this in Habakkuk 1, but it's safe to say that roughly sometime around 609 B.C., Habakkuk received this revelation from God. 586, so 20 to 30 years later, 586, Babylon comes in and destroys Jerusalem. And you know, you got to think, imagine being someone living in Judah at the time. You know, I mean, Babylon looked invincible. And yet the Lord said to Habakkuk, No, I will punish them too. I will lay them low as well. And less than 50 years later, in 539 BC, the Persians wiped out Babylon. Again, I realize this is a lot of death, a lot of destruction. But I do want to point out, this actually happened. This is historical. God did what he said he would do. And again, I mentioned this in Habakkuk 1, but this should comfort us that our God is the God of history. His actions in history sometimes confuse us and bewilder us, but he is the God of history. And that should comfort us. So in summary, he punished Babylon. He would punish Babylon for their pride and for their slaughtering all of, of all of these other nations. The proud are not right with God. That is the big idea of the first aspect of this promise. Now, let's talk about the other side of it. The righteous shall live by faith. Something I think is really interesting here is, you know, oftentimes when we think of what is the opposite of belief, you know, think about that question. What is the opposite of belief? I naturally think the opposite of belief is unbelief. But notice that what gets paired here in our promise in verse 4, the antithesis or the opposite of pride is belief. And so on the other side of that, the opposite of faith in our verse is actually pride. It's not unbelief. Because what you see here is that the proud, they trust in themselves but the righteous trust in God's character and God's promises. So those two are pitted against each other. You've got those who live by faith, those who trust in God, those who trust in his character and his promises, and then those who are puffed up, those who are proud, those who trust in themselves. So you see these two kind of pitted against each other. Now, notice the proud will die, but those with faith live. And, you know, we got to ask, what does this mean? You know, what does it mean that the faith, that those who live by faith, what does it mean that they will live? Those who have faith will live. 
And I think this is an important question because we got to wonder when Habakkuk heard that, that the righteous will live by faith. I kind of wonder, what did he think that meant? Because we, we know that Babylon still came. Babylon wiped out Jerusalem. They carried the people away into exile. And so we know that if you look at the people of Judah, you had the wicked and the righteous. Both experienced the hardship and trial of Jerusalem being destroyed. Both were carried off into exile. And so live here it doesn't mean that the righteous don't experience hardship, trial, suffering, and ease. So what does it mean? At the same time, we know that historically, God preserved the righteous line of Judah through history, even in the exile. So I think there's a little bit of mystery around what does live mean? You know, does live mean that we are preserved in this life, even though trial, hardship, persecution comes, or is live something more future-oriented? You with me? Maybe an example, an example that I think helps us see the mystery of this is in the book of Daniel. So in the book of Daniel, uh, the book of Daniel happens after the exile. So the Babylonians come, they wipe out Jerusalem. They carry off many of the people into exile to Babylon. And there's a couple of young men who get carried away to Babylon. And a couple of those young men, their names are Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you've been around church for a while, you've probably heard these names. And this, especially the story of those three young men, that story, I think, captures really well the mystery of the righteous will live by faith. I'm going to have it on the screen for us, but... There's a, there's a part in Daniel 3 where those three young men, they're told, hey, look, you've got two options. Your two options are you will bow down to this golden image that we've made of our king or you're going to die. Those are your two options. That's all you got. Those aren't great two options, but those are their two options. And they, they wrestle with these options, and, and these three young men say, look, we're not going to bow down to this image. We worship the Lord. And... They, um, if you could throw that up on the screen for us, this is these three young men, their conversation with the king, and I think it captures the heart of the righteous will live by faith. They say, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. He is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand O king he will deliver us but if not interesting he will deliver us but if not be it known to you O king that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up you, you see the mystery there he will deliver us but if not I, I, I kind of wonder again, I don't, know if this is, I don't know if this was in their minds, but I wonder if Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had Habakkuk 2-4 in their minds as they stood before the king. The righteous will live by faith. What live means is a little fuzzy. Maybe he will preserve us in this life. Maybe we're looking to a future deliverance. 
But what we do know is that he's good and he's trustworthy. And because he's good and because he's trustworthy, we will believe that either now or in a future life, he will ultimately deliver us and we will live. You, you see the mystery in that? But I think it captures this well for us. These three young men, they're unwilling to presume on God's preservation in the moment, but they are willing to trust him because they know he's trustworthy. So back to, um, back to Habakkuk 2.4, notice also that those who live by faith in God, they are righteous. And in opposition to that in Habakkuk 2.4, the proud are not upright. So those who live by faith, they're the righteous, but the proud, they are not righteous. They are not upright. So this phrase, the righteous shall live by faith. This is a little phrase that it captures what it means to be a Christian. The righteous shall live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. This captures the heart of what it means to be a Christian. And on the one hand, we become Christians by faith. And then on the other hand, we live the Christian life by faith. So there's a sense in which you become righteous by faith. There's also a sense in which, as a Christian, you live your life by faith. It's both. It's in a moment, but it's also through the entirety of your life. And we, we see this because this little phrase, the righteous will live by faith, it's quoted twice in the New Testament. And, and so I want to look at both of these because the first one in Romans 1, it really captures this idea of you become righteous through faith. The other quote is in, is in Hebrews 10. And Hebrews 10 captures this idea of you live your life as a Christian daily by faith. So I want to look at both of these to help us see this. Let's look at Romans 1 first. So in Romans 1, Paul is introducing his letter and he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then he quotes our verse, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, for as it is written, and there it is, the righteous shall live by faith. And so you see, Paul quotes our phrase, the righteous shall live by faith, but what he has in mind is the gospel. Like the righteous shall live by faith. What is faith? Faith is believing the gospel. Faith is believing the good news that you can have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And live. What does live mean? Live means have salvation. That's what it means. Sal to live in the idea of Romans 1 is to have salvation through union with Jesus Christ by faith. So in Romans 1, when our phrase gets quoted, that's the idea. It's the idea of becoming righteous through faith in Jesus Christ, having peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. But then if we look at Hebrews 10, we see that we live our lives as Christians by faith, daily, monthly, every moment of every day for our lives. So if you look at this one, 
Hebrews 10, we're starting verse 36, and we'll go through to a little bit of verse 11. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For, and here's our quote, this is actually verse 3 and verse 4 in Habakkuk 2. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And here, the, the author of Hebrews is about to tell us what faith is. So he's about to define what faith is. And he says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. So here, when the author of Hebrews is quoting our little phrase from Habakkuk 2.4, he's defining faith as a future-oriented thing. He's defining faith as a trust in the promises and character of God that actually affect your life. That's, that's the idea he's got in his mind here. It's, it is a trust in the character and the promises of God in such a way that it actually changes how you live your life. And if you keep reading Hebrews 11, that's what Hebrews 11 is. It's, it's all these examples of, of heroes from the Old Testament who over and over and over again they had faith, and their faith affected the way they lived their life. Now, we can get in a little trouble here. We do need to realize that faith here is not the complete absence of doubt. And we know that because the people who are listed in Hebrews 11 as the heroes of the faith who had faith often doubted and often made really big mistakes. But we also see that while faith is not the absence of doubt, true faith is a trust in God that actually changes how you live your life. One of my favorite examples of this in Hebrews 11 is the example of Abraham. And again, Abraham clearly doubted, made a ton of mistakes, but there's an example from Abraham's life that's cited in Hebrews 11. And it's this example where God had, made this pro God had given this promise to Abraham, and the promise was Abraham you will one day have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And this promise is going to come through your son Isaac. So Abraham receives that promise. He believes the promise. Well, there comes a day when God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. And this is probably the high, one of the high points in Abraham's life for us that we see in the Bible. And so Abraham goes through with it, and he he goes to sacrifice his son, and, and in the moment, right as he's about to sacrifice his son, God stops him. And Hebrews 11 gives us a little commentary on what was going on in Abraham's head. And in Hebrews 11, we're told that Abraham so believed that God would keep his promise that he just knew that, well, God's going to bring Isaac back from the dead. That's what Hebrews 11 tells us. He so trusted the promise of God that he just knew God's going to bring him back from the dead. And I think that is a great example for us of a faith that, yeah, it's not the complete absence of doubt, but it is a faith that affects your daily life. 
just before the service, some of us were, we were back in the prayer room praying, and we read, this is, I think, another great example of this, we read Matthew 6, and there's this passage in Matthew 6, and it, it talks about not being anxious about your life, not being anxious about what you're going to eat, what you're going to wear, because God feeds the birds of the air, so of course He's going to feed you. He clothes the lilies of the field, so of course, he's gonna, of course He will clothe you. And then you get to the end of that passage, and there's a promise. And it says, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. That is a great example of what it means to live by faith. You, you believe that God will provide for your basic needs in such a way that it actually affects what you do with those basic things. It actually affects how you live your life. Another example of this that I think is closely tied to Habakkuk 2, because again, remember, in Habakkuk 2, we're seeing pride, trusting in yourself, pitted against faith, trusting in God. So I think another great example of this that is pertinent to us, you know, there's this American spirit that I am the master of my fate and I am the captain of my soul. And I will say I'm very thankful that I live in the country that I live in. But that spirit is a bit of the spirit of the Babylonians. And there's a couple of verses. So, so there's a verse in James 1, and it tells us that every good gift comes from above. Now, again, if we go back to Habakkuk 2 and the idea of the proud, those who trust in themselves, and the righteous, those who live by faith, those who trust in God, you know, James 1 tells us that every good gift in our life comes from God. Now, think about your life. Think about the things in your life that you consider a good gift. James 1 tells you that those things that you have, those good gifts in your life, you have them because God gave them to you. You don't have them by your own might, by your own strength, by your own discipline, by your own endurance, by your own ingenuity. James 1 says that every good gift comes from above. Or another verse along those same lines is in 1 Corinthians 4. And in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul starts this verse by saying, who sees anything different in you? So basically what he's saying is, look around. Maybe even do this. Look around. Look at some people. There are some differences in your life compared to those around you. Right? And there's some things about your life that are different than the, than the person next to you. You know, for some of you, maybe your children turned out better. For some of you, maybe you have a nicer home. For some of you, maybe you're a more faithful Christian or church member. Maybe some of you are better off financially. In 1 Corinthians 4, Paul says, who sees anything different in you? So there are differences between us. And then he says this. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? So the differences between you and the next person. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? That's what Paul says. 
So here's another example of living by faith. Living by faith is believing what God says here, that every good gift in our lives comes from above. And the differences between you and the next person are things that you received. And like I said, I think we've all got a bit of the spirit of the Babylonians in us, especially as Americans. We kind of make a name for ourselves and make a life for ourselves. And again, I'm so thankful that I live where I do. And of course, please don't hear me wrong, I'm not saying be lazy, be irresponsible. But if we take the promises of God as, as promises and truth, He's telling us that any good gift in our life comes from Him. So I guess for application, you know, what, what do you do with this verse? You know, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, then I would say to you, the righteous live by faith. I would say to you, the righteous live by faith in the same way that Paul said it in Romans 1, that there will be a day when the same judgment that came upon Judah and the same judgment that came upon Babylon, it will come upon you for your pride. In the same way that Judah was proud, in the same way that Babylon is proud, you're proud. You think that you have what you have by your own mind and strength and ingenuity, and one day you will come face to face with God, and you will meet His wrath. But the righteous will live by faith. And I say to you that Jesus died so that you might live by faith. Now, if you're here today and you're a Christian, what do I say to you? Well, I say the righteous will live by faith. It's the same is true for us. The righteous will live by faith daily throughout the entirety of their lives. We believe the promises of God, we trust in the character of God, and it actually affects who we are and how we live. And then I'd say, too, you know, I'd imagine there's a handful of us who are here today who in a lot of ways feel like Habakkuk. Or maybe we feel like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, where we feel like we're in a fiery furnace. Or maybe you look around at your life and all you see is death, kind of like Habakkuk. And that's a hard place to be. And I would say the same to you that the righteous will live by faith and we see in Habakkuk and we even see in Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego that while God's ways often bewilder us we do know that he's good and he's trustworthy and that in one way or another in this life or the next you will live and he will deliver you we know that. So I want to close with a, with a poem that I think captures really well this whole the proud are not right with God, the, pride, the, the proud trust in themselves, but the righteous trust in God. I want to end with a poem. I mentioned this line earlier, but you probably heard this line of, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. This is... This is a poem that was written by William Ernest Henley. And Henley suffered greatly 
from a lifelong battle with tuberculosis that eventually cost him a foot. And during a, a, a lengthy hospital stay, when he lost that foot, he wrote the poem Invictus. And this is the poem this is, that this line comes from. And, and this is a poem that has actually inspired millions of people, but the history of it is that Henley is actually a very settled atheist. And this poem for him was kind of his middle finger to the cosmos of through all of my suffering and all my trial, God, if you're out there, I'm the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul, and I will not be crushed by the suffering. And so I have to say, I, I admire his persevering spirit, but his spirit is the spirit of the Babylonians. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. I am who I am because I made myself. And a couple years later, there was a woman named Dorothy Day who wrote a poem as a bit of a foil and a response to Invictus, and she called it Conquered. And I want to read it to you. And it, it, again, it captures so well these two pitted against each other. This is what she wrote. And this is what it means to live by faith. Out of the light that dazzles me, bright as the sun from pole to pole, I thank the God I know to be for Christ, the conqueror of my soul. Since his the sway of circumstance, I would not wince nor cry aloud. Under the rule which men call chance, my head with joy is humbly bowed. Beyond this place of sin and tears, that life with him and his the aid that spite the menace of the years keeps and will keep me unafraid. I have no fear, though straight the gate, he cleared from punishment the scroll. Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the captain of my soul. That's what it means to live by faith. So I say to all of us, the righteous will live by faith. Let's pray.